They perch atop battlements in storm-filled skies, snarling, frozen in stone. They lurk in shadowed alcoves deep underground, waiting to strike the unwary. They adorn the rooftops of majestic buildings, wings folded, peering in silence. They jut from the dread walls of the legendary Temple of Elemental Evil. But are they mere sculptures or real monsters lurking in plain sight? Gargoyles are treacherous humanoids of elemental origin that resemble winged statues of diabolic aspect. Most have prodigious horns, sharp teeth, and long tails. Relentless predators, they haunt ruins, caverns, and subterranean hollows, usually hunting for sport or charged with guarding a specific location. These are the introductory paragraphs to Ecology of the Gargoyle, which is an article in Dragon Magazine, issue 423, May 2013. This is written by Jeff LaSala, who you will hear more of later on. But right now, that's not important because that's fourth edition. That's not what we're doing, although we've subsumed it into our uh, mission statement. We were using it because today on Monster Manual Mash, we are getting into the gargoyle. Yeah. What is this podcast? Well, Chris, <laughs> this, is, this, is, uh, this is Monster Manual Mash, uh, the podcast where we go through the Dungeon Dragons 5th edition Monster Manual entry by entry talking about uh the monsters why they are the way they are what else they could be that sort of thing well said sorry to put you on the spot oh it's okay (laughs) yeah so that's what we're doing this is the gargoyle um very excited about this one because we've got jeff lasala who is a listener of the show um always has good extra bits to add to the conversation on facebook he well we'll introduce him later Right now, let's keep to our tradition, and we'll deal with the actual entry in the 5th edition monster manual for the gargoyle. And we'll see what we're dealing with here first. Gargoyle. The inanimate gargoyles that perch atop great buildings are inspired by these malevolent creatures of elemental earth that resemble grotesque, fiendish statues. A gargoyle lurks among masonry and ruins, as still as any stone sculpture and delights in the terror it creates when it breaks from its suspended pose, as well as the pain it inflicts on its victims. So right away, I kind of like this because it suggests that it's the reverse of how we would think of a gargoyle existing as a real thing today, as like, uh, maybe I'm getting that twisted. What I like about this is that it suggests that gargoyle statues are actually imitating a creature that already exists. Yeah, yeah. Which is the gargoyle itself. And not only that, but they, if you make a bunch of gargoyle statues, uh, that's how you get gargoyles showing up because they like to, to be there. One of my favorite, um, this is more of like a video game trope, but it like, obviously you could do this on tabletop gaming too. I just, I can think of examples of this happening, but like one of my favorite things is when you go into a room or you climb on top of a church for some reason, and then there's a row of gargoyle statues, but then one of them starts moving and comes at you, right? It's like the, the, the gargoyle, like sort of almost inexplicably hidden amongst the identical statues of the same thing. Right. And I just, uh, it's always a good moment because whenever you see like a row of gargoyles, you sort of have this feeling of like, which one of these, which, what's the odd one? Oh yeah. I think we've touched on this before where nothing 
can really uh, terrorize a player of a video game or a role-playing game quite like having to deal with a statue. Yeah. Like, because they're going to attack it, they're going to keep looking over their shoulder to make sure it doesn't come to life. Um, One great example of this is in a... This happens multiple times throughout the Dark Souls series and Elden Ring, where you'll see the regular statues all over the place, and I'm like, okay, that's just the statues of demons in this world. That's fine. And then one or two of them comes alive or one of them comes alive and they're like okay this one's coming alive. and then another one does and then for the rest of the game you see those statues in other places in the other series and they don't come alive again but from that point you're you're never you never feel safe right yeah Same you're, thing. You're, it's, it's like a back's always up do a similar thing with like a mimics and chests there, there's a similar sort of trope there it's like you all you have to do is betray your players or the whoever the the person with agency you have to betray their trust one time and you can turn anything with just a few ingredients into a desperate paranoid experience yeah yeah paranoia is good in an adventure especially uh gargoyles because they look so uh demonic and menacing by nature like kind of yeah. uh, as a requirement well it's kind of funny i like to imagine if um this the idea of like building statues of something attracts them the the real thing to actually live there like what if that was just an open-ended uh force of nature where like if you if you make a statue in the likeness of something you attract things that look like that that are alive yeah like that's just sort of like a like a like a fact of the world yeah like a, a sort of a kind of animism if you make a little like clay sculpture of a messed up little bug dude i'm just thinking of the Probably the last time I played with Clay was like grade nine. You have to make a, you have to make an alien that could survive on a planet on a different planet, and you right. you had to like justify. It's like well, the like Venus is like super hot, so I made him have like a super hard back that would absorb. It was like a hard shell. Oh man, that was completely insensitive to light. Oh, I love that. And then he just crawled around with a he had a big mouth on his stomach because he just crawled around and like ate off the ground. Anyways, that was the last time that I played with. Uh, clay and it'd be interesting to set a game in a world where like creating a likeness actually brings life to things that look like that yeah get a lot of owls on top of grocery stores (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if those work those owl statues that are supposed to scare away they definitely do not yeah i you definitely see pigeons standing on them sometimes yeah yeah i can think of some like ronald the ronald the clown uh statues getting up walking around (laughs) <laughs> but like not the statues don't get up they just attract ronald's <laughs> yeah they attract clowns hmm. yeah i'm more worried about the grimaces i haven't seen too many grimace statues but i'm sure they're out there they used to be there used to be a whole crew that you'd see in the play place i remember that yeah. from being a kid there was like this and i always thought it was weird this is such a but like why like it seemed to like there's there was this implication that there was this whole like world of lore of like mcdonald's characters but like that was yeah i don't know if there was was there i'm sure they were all sleeping with each other yeah yeah let's read on so now we get into the subheadings here we have animate stone Cling, they, uh, they cling to cliffs, cave ledges, and they haunt city rooftops, perching among high stone arches. So still they appear inanimate. They're able to hold the state for years, making an ideal sentry. Makes sense. Holding it for years is kind of interesting to know. Yeah, especially given that these are like sentient. 
beings, right? Like it's they're like a, it's like a guy, you know. So like there's a little guy in there, yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked about this a bit before with the Galib Tahur. Like, what's it like, just sort of being a perpetual rock guy? You know, there's a there's yeah. a continuity there. The Galib Tahur, they at least seem a little uh, like introspective, and I'm sure they have thoughts about it. But there's nothing about yeah. the gargoyle that suggests that they think yeah. about this. Yeah, it's it just comes naturally to just wait. Yeah. Or like maybe their brain turns off like in hibernation and their their oh. but their senses are still receiving. It's like sleeping <laughs> yeah. lightly. Because they only have an intelligence of six, which That's puts true. them in like yeah. a semi animal state. Although, you know, you get, we get into this whole conversation about attributes, especially intelligence and what an intelligence score is, because it's intelligence of six, it only gives you a minus three to rolls. Yeah. <laughs> so like you can you can still do most things. You could still do most things. And like, I feel like there's so much more like nuance to the concept of intelligence. It's not like there aren't like 20, 20 places you could be. 20 brackets. Like a of it, scale. Yeah. 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 There's no score for emotional intelligence. But like we, it's, it's, it's also <laughs> um, like you, you can only get so complicated with tabletop. Yeah. Properties, <laughs> so. yeah let's, let's like uh, let sleeping dogs lie there. Um, they have a deadly reputation. They are cruel. Statues in the likeness of gargoyles appear in architecture of countless cultures to frighten away trespassers. Real gargoyles hide among them. They might alleviate their tedium of waiting by attacking birds or rodents, but it craves to harm sentient creatures. So here we have their motivation. They like to hurt. They like to be cruel, which might make them, uh, you know, accept. They might accept sentry duties as a chance to hurt things, as a reason to hurt things. They are cruel servants, easily inspired by cunning masters. They enjoy simple guarding tasks, torturing and killing interlopers, minimum effort and maximum pain or carnage. They will serve appropriate masters for years with the patience and fortitude of stone. So you can kind of treat them like dogs. They have like a doggish mentality of like, they like simple commands. They like uh, action reward transactions. Yeah. And they especially like it if these things are uh, torturing and killing things and being told to wait somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Which they're good yeah. at doing. Which and, and it really seems like, and I think this is why you see this so often in, in, in fiction and in uh, like, you know, like uh, campaign settings of things is they almost seem well, they really are like a perfect fit to be associated with a powerful vampire, you know, because you've got the castle, you've got the, you've got like all kinds of ways for them to perch. You've got a being that's very long lived and cunning. And like, there's a lot of like, in, you know, it, 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 everything just kind of like works together there. So there's this, to me, there's a very natural association. Oh, hell yeah. They're, they're goth. They're goth as hell. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's no accident that uh, the Gargoyles TV show um, although kind of short-lived, is a cult classic. At the same time that the Batman animated TV show came out, there was like a weird little moment in 90s animation where yeah. it was all about the dark and gothy. Yeah, yeah. There was also, I feel like the, 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 the Gargoyles show was sort of like a crossover between, because there was like the dark sort of gothy kid shows at the time. And there was also... I think really this 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 is ultimately maybe a spin-off of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles but like you want a team of not humans working together 
So you yeah. got your you got your mummies alive. You got your street sharks. You got your gargoyles. You know, you got mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like that was like a whole whole era of stuff there. But biker mice from Mars. Yeah, yeah. But gargoyles was like a that was a a really good example. Like that was a pretty good show. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm remembering it with rose tinted glasses, but I also um I and I don't know if it, yeah well I'll bring it up now the the have you heard of the Xanatos Gambit? Uh, I think I have from you on a different show, but please say it again. <laughs> right, yeah. So the Xanatos Gambit, um, it's a it's, I think the idea of this is very like much popularized as a as a as a trope on TV tropes, and I think it's one of the oldest published ones there. But basically, it's the because uh, he was Xanatos, the villain. He was such a well-written villain because he would come up with a plan, and the the plan would be set up in a way where, like, no matter what the gargoyles chose to do, like he w- his plan would succeed in one way if his plan just succeeded normally, and if but if they foiled his plan, that would like lead into a secondary success, and so it was like a win. <laughs> he would always set up these win-win situations, which is just like a writer's trick, really, because it's like, well, how do we keep? This villain always going like, ha, 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 you know, you'll never stop me. I, I, I got you. It kind of keeps the tension and keeps going. But it also ends up like when you want your show to do that, you end up creating these little like logic puzzles. And uh, every evil plot that he had was like this little logic puzzle. And you sort of knew it was going to be win-win for him. But like you had this question, it's like, well, how, how is it going to work this time, Sanitos? And a, a surprisingly well-written villain, villain whose motivations, I think, was just to have gargoyle powers himself or something like it's not really clear at one point he makes himself a robot gargoyle suit yeah i think they take the whole castle to the city like that's how the gargoyles get into the city is they take this whole gothic castle on helicopters yeah he brings the the whole castle yeah (laughs) he transports the whole castle from scotland it's um i i tried watching a bunch of them in the first early days of the uh, lockdowns yeah as good a good as a pastime as any uh-huh. oh yeah and uh the i think i know why it didn't even though it's a cult classic now i think at the time mm. like the story is really convoluted <laughs> and like he and that's part of it the xanatos gambits are part of it where no matter what happens it's these extremely elaborate puzzles and and like reveals of plans uh like setups that have been in place already that just kind of stretch believability and there's all these like political moves like eventually xanatos becomes a sort of like ally and there's like a third group of people called the the quartermasters or something (laughs) who have like a political thing of their own and there's like constant like uh, Uh, the chess masters chess masters yeah i think it's chess masters that makes sense yeah there's just like uh, and it's it's very hard to follow as a kid like i'm just there for the 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 flying and the punching and uh the confusing attractiveness of demonia oh yeah <laughs> but like yeah that's why it only went three seasons and there's also a very good uh uh board game i don't, actually don't know if it's very good i say it's very good because it had a, a vhs component and that automatically makes it worth something oh yeah i have i have a little bit of detail about the gargoyles tv show but i'll get to that later we haven't even left the uh fifth edition page yet so the final uh paragraph here is elemental nature this is a old standard this is um kind of a clause in a contract you see a bunch if something is an elemental nature it's like being undead sort of where you have no need for sleep for eating or drinking 
And it's um it's kind of not elaborated on. So that's the first little bit that tells you the nature of the gargoyle, elemental nature. And in fifth edition, especially, we've really they really try to sell you on the elemental evils. Our guest Jeff will elaborate on that later, because this was happening in fourth edition as well. But they do include a little sidebar about a particular story element. So whenever they usually try to do very broad strokes in these fifth edition entries. But if they have like a piece of lore that ties it into something else, they'll put it in this little box to, I guess, suggest that this isn't strictly um, true or strictly necessary for you to use them. It's just one take. And in this, there is a evil prince of elemental evil called Ogremach, who is a uh, earth elemental, an evil earth elemental prince. He walks around his stony realm and the shards of rock that fall in his wake from his footsteps transform over years into gargoyles with a sliver of his sentience. And the reason they have wings is because it's a mockery of the elemental air that Ogremach hates. And occasionally, Ogremach will throw gargoyles into the elemental plane of air just to fuck with them, which is kind of cool. And uh, I, like that, I like that origin of them. If, we're gonna, if they're going to be elemental, then they have a sort of like primordial... Uh, mythical origin yeah and i like what i like about that thing too is it ties together a bunch of a bunch of things right because you've got why are they um just naturally predisposed to causing suffering and why are they like rock guys but who can fly and have wings like that yeah. always seems yeah like a, that's like, always like confused me yeah because if they're, it's funny. Like uh, all these, all these threads that exist in the gargoyle in our world, like are pulling the D and D writers in all kinds of different directions that they just can't, they just can't square this. I don't think. Yeah. They keep, especially because they want them to fit into this like elemental evil cosmology, and you got to explain the wings. And this, this, this is still a little shaky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I guess it's like. Um, they're like designed, or I guess they're not designed, but they are in order. If they're going to go to the elemental plane of air to to like conduct raids or just attack people for no reason, they need. They're going to need wings, otherwise they're just going to fall. Yeah, yeah. So being purpose built, or or, but that's the funny thing is that they're not. They're not like made to do this. They just like come out of it this way. Yeah, yeah, and that's it for their their entry. They have a. Uh, you know, pretty, they have stats you would expect. They're like moderately dangerous. They have some uh, fairly low armor class for being totally rock, I think. Like they have 15 AC. 15 AC, but they... They have damage resistance. They got damage resistance and they got they got like a decent amount of hit points too. Um, yeah. And like, I don't know, the way the abstractions of these things, like it wouldn't be that hard to hit a gargoyle, but like how much, what are you doing? You're you're hitting a rock you know yeah but uh yeah and then they have bite and claw you know these kinds of things so hidden hidden in here are like the faintest suggestions of what a gargoyle encounter would be and like i think also something that confuses the presentation of the gargoyle is their real world uh interpretations their guardians so they hang out on the edge of churches we know this of like gothic yeah. churches um and they are depending on your source they are 
guardians that protect against evil spirits and or they are manifestations visualizations of demons that are chewing on the walls of the church trying to get in and so the only safety is to get into the church because evil is without yeah um so then within like one creature we have like both guardian sentry and invader yeah and there's kind of like these 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 opposing elements of like wood like is there's also i think in some interpretations and traditions you you put the 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 gargoyles and grotesques and just statues of monsters outside of the building to like as a as a ward right it's like no no this is like as far as you go right like like you were saying they're trying to get in and so you have like one interpretation where like the statues of these things keep those things away and then the other one, we're like, no, it draws them in. So, like, what, it, it's what's what's like what's going on with these? <laughs> it attracts know? them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, does does the owl does the owl statue make owls stay off of the of the of the of the fresco, or does, does it draw owls onto the fresco? <laughs> no one thought about the owl infestation yeah. you'd get. Yeah, but you get this sort of maybe it's the maybe it's the 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 sort of metaphysical turbulence between those two forces that makes like a vortex that actually does pull the pull the gargoyles in yeah maybe and like maybe they don't even know what they're there to do they're menacing they might protect you or they might not yeah i like yeah so like i like them being it says here they're chaotic evil and i think that is good because they can like they can sit for years or they can just like attack you for no reason maybe there's like you could even pass through an area with like gargoyles fully aware and conscious of you but just not interested until suddenly yeah. they want to fuck with you for whatever reason. Right. Yeah. Cause, cause you, cause you, well, you want to be, if they're chaotic evil and they're motivated by like causing harm, you want to be someone who it's interesting to harm. Right. Like that's, that's what's going to yeah. motivate them. It's like, is it going to be interesting? So it's like, uh, it's like the, you know, like why is the Joker after Batman? Right. It's like, they, yeah. it's, 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 you, you want, it's, yeah. Yeah. That's well said. That, that, um, I think that really highlights their psychology as presented here. Because it's going to be way more interesting if they can like scare the fearless paladin, right? Or or like a um uh like somehow somehow corrupt like the holy cleric than it is to just like murder some murderous bandits, right? Yeah, yeah, I like that. Because then they can still work for someone guarding something, but they can do it on their terms. And as 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 we'll find out later, there's all kinds of fun jobs that gargoyles can have. <laughs> that's right and uh they don't have to be evil either i think um our guest jeff did a lot of work to try and suggest all kinds of alternatives to the the gargoyle as presented and that works so well in a in 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 like eberron which is going to come up too because that is a setting where explicitly almost nothing is inherently good or inherently evil like there's 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 always variation for any kind of being yeah in that setting so yeah all right, without any uh, further ado, please listen to my interview with Jeff LaSala.
Um, how do you want me to introduce you? Like, say you're Jeff Lasala, uh, writer, editor of, uh, or maybe I'll just get you to say it. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think I'd be good at that, but I'm not. Um, uh, let me think. Uh, you know, ultimately, I mean, honestly, all of the Wizards of the Coast related things anyway, it's all just, I was a freelancer for them. Um, and even when I wrote a novel, that was a freelance thing. So a mm -hmm. uh, freelance writer is probably the safest thing. I mean, I do production editorial like as my day job so i'm still doing like publishing stuff but um but i mean in the in this context i'm a freelance writer that's certainly all the things i enjoy the most are that right on okay so yeah so we'll say that today with me is uh jeff lasala a longtime listener and a uh, friend of the show who's contributed in various ways morale boosting is one of them and <laughs> Today is, I think this is great. This is very special because Jeff has actually done freelance work for the official D&D milieu. It's part of the canon, <laughs> at least one of the uh, editions. Yes, exactly. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll get into the monster you created. Well fleshed out yeah well that's that's just it i'm not the yeah. monster design designer i work i work from someone else's design i think that's probably the way it would would have gone but um sure i um thank you first of all uh yeah i am a long time listener i i don't i don't remember what monster i started in with but i remember my brother was the one to point it out that it, that your podcast existed and then i'm like why are there not more podcasts like this right exactly yeah, <laughs> why did i have to like, do this <laughs> can't somebody else do this i didn't want to do this <laughs> if someone else did it then you wouldn't have to yeah but i mean honestly there's probably lots of D, D podcasts but um you know there's there's so much like mechanics and design discussion and i guess campaign stuff but actually just discussing like the, the lore of monsters that's that's the stuff i love and uh that's that's what i find they're not it's not enough of so hence your podcast was perfect for that. Well, thank you. Um, and hence, uh, perfect for you to, you're, you, that must be the reason you got an ecology writing gig. Totally. Yes. Yeah. So um, brief history then. So I didn't start with articles uh, with Wizards. My first contact with them was actually back in the early 2000s. They did a, um, a contest, an open call for a new Forgotten Realms novel at the time. And they knew what they wanted to title. It was called Maiden of Pain. And it is a real book, uh, although it's probably out of print too now. They sent out a call and then, while they only picked one person whose submission they went with and wrote a novel, they did sort of form a short list of, of writers that, uh, that I did make it to. And then that eventually led to me being pestery and um, being included when they did another sort of... Um, another uh open call but but only by invitation so then i was involved in that and through that i ended up writing an eberron novel so that was my first thing with wizards of the coast oh very cool um, do you want to uh plug it <laughs> sure sure uh, now but i will start with this let me preface it with this most dungeons and dragons novels are out of print like even the really most of the really good ones entirely <laughs> really Almost. You will still find some stocked still. I guess they're reprinting some. And I'm, that probably includes the Dragonlance Chronicles. And like, there's like a few series there, a, a few of the, the sort of prominent books. Mm -hmm. Certainly all of the R.A. Salvatore books are still going strong. Right. And he's kind of their only regular author at this stage. 
so they're, they've kind of lapsed into this phase where they've they're just not doing novels now um but they were for a long time and that's what i grew up with like i that's what inspired me and got me into interested in writing so much um so uh but yeah anyway so i so my my eberron novel was called the darkwood mask and it was just a, a standalone story part of a series called the inquisitives which in eberron are like detectives private eyes you know it's it's that's their version of it and so that was the only like common theme between the four books of that series they were not chronological or anything they're all standalone stories and mine was the fourth and in, fourth installment of that series um which by the way i put a gargoyle in i just want to say that <laughs> <laughs> like early on <laughs> i'm like if i'm only doing this once i'm shoving in all of my favorite monsters and so there is a gargoyle there is a mimic there is um a few a few creatures <laughs> i'm just like i may never do this again so i'm putting in my favorites but what's interesting and actually i should probably push this off a little bit just because uh the way I use the gargoyle in that is kind of varies per world, right? That's that's mm-hmm. one of the concepts of monster design that I'm I, I think is such an interesting discussion point. But there's lots of different opinions about this sort of thing. But anyway, I used it in the Eberron way um, at the time. So yeah, so the Darkwood Mask is a novel that came out back in 2008, and like most novels of <laughs> Wizards of the Coast, they are out of print. Although. You can still buy a Kindle version and you can still get, oddly enough, you can still get audio. Audible has them, like most of them. It's actually really impressive. Like when they were phasing out novels, they went and recorded most of them. So I, like they did something and I was really like, uh, I was very surprised and, and delighted to see that they did that. So That's interesting. At least then I guess the uh, the file just sits on a server where they can just doll it out when people pay instead of having to worry about print runs. Yeah. Yep. And that's true for the, the Kindle as well. In fact, the last time I checked, the Kindle version of my book still has some of its typos. They never, they never <laughs> and really ironically, really is that I'm literally in the job now at at Macmillan, where um, I can fix things like that, like back catalog spelling errors. Yeah, like I'm I'm in a position to like if if somebody points out to me, oh, an error, like an author gets a letter for an email from somebody, it might make its way to me. And, and I can put, you know, request in for, okay, next time it's reprinted, fix this typo, whatever. So is your like, whole, like, publishing career, like, a long sort of uh, quest to fix the mistakes of your youth? Yes, it sure is. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the truth is, I was not doing anything publishing at the time. When I was writing the, this novel, I was um, I was working with an, with an editor at Wizards, and I kept thinking, gosh, I think I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> like, I enjoy being the novelist, but I actually really like the nitty-gritty of of the text and writing. So, um, and then when that <laughs> very unfortunate typo, which I won't go into now, I feel like that's a story. <laughs> the same. It, 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 We're going to do a whole episode it, on your typo. It's, it's haunted me for years, but it's become something that's like fun to tie. It's like a, it's a story at parties. So, um, but that did partially inspire me to end up being where I am, which is in the production side of, of uh, book, book publishing. So anyway, so that novel existed. And then, um, uh, I, I, a few years went by, a couple of years, and then around 2010, I think they, they by that time, Dungeon Magazine and Dragon Magazine had finished their print run. They weren't going to do them anymore, and that was a big sad thing. And then they're like, "Hey, we're going to do digital version now," mm-hmm. and that was not as exciting. To be fair, it's I have 10 articles in Dungeon and Dragon magazines, but they're all digital, <laughs> right? And worse, they're all fourth edition. And therefore, you really have to actively seek them out now. They can't just, you're not just going to stumble on them anywhere. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, you can get them on DMs Guild and whatever. So they're they're still available, but they're just being fourth edition. They're they're relatively cast aside. Yeah, I th- I think you're that's true, but I think. Uh, hopefully there's enough of like a collector spirit in uh, in the hobby at large that even fourth edition stuff, like there's gotta be just, I know they're just PDFs, but there's gotta be just like servers full of them around, you know? There are probably, I it's, I really wish I could know, like, I, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. Like there's definitely people who are going to go seek these things out. Um, you don't see it talked about, but I, I would love to know, like what are the stats of the purchases of these old yeah. digital files? I mean, I went back and bought some books I never was able to acquire physically so i've gotten some pdfs of some classics mm-hmm. um, and I, th- I think there's outside a, of the magazine i think there's a bit of a fourth edition uh maybe not revival but like reassessment i think a lot of people yeah. are coming around on it a little bit maybe it, it'll never be like the main hotness but sure i think there's enough interest to like check out what it was yeah. what it was trying to do yep i I agree. Um, I have very mixed feelings on on fourth edition. So, but it, a lot of good came from it too. So I'm, I'm I'll, I'll never like say it was wholly bad. To use a Tolkien phrase, uh, fourth edition, like evil, is good to have been. So <laughs> it can still be evil. It can still be not great, but good things have come from what happened. So that's how I I do think fifth edition design is like improved because fourth edition existed. If you somehow could have gone from third to fifth, you, it would not be as streamlined and maybe even a strategic. So I I think there's a lot that fourth edition did that added. It was great. And I have very mixed feelings about the lore. And I I mean, some of this is goes into the, the gargoyle too. So, so yeah, I basically, I ended up doing a number of articles through what, what they call the digital version um, D&D Insider, for some reason. It was very, very corporate marketing mm-hmm. speak, but that's what they called it. And um, and then after, actually, the gargoyle, the ecology of the gargoyle was the last one I did. And then shortly after that, I think they they phased out all of all of the digital magazines anyway. So it was kind of sad. And then they just, now you have the D&D Beyond stuff and whatever. It's a whole, whole different form. Yeah. Now it's just, now it's just a constant drip of all kinds of yeah. things. With, with no real organization. They tried to do themes, you know, back in the day. They tried to do, you know, a particular issue would have various things that would kind of fall together in a certain way. And they'd have an editorial, you know, very traditional magazine. And like a lot of things in the world, they've kind of evolved away from that. It's fine, but it's some of it's sad. Well, we can probably illuminate some of your points on the good and bad of fourth edition by actually getting into the gargoyle. Maybe we can walk through, like, I'll try to be quick, but maybe we can walk through some of, like, what, what gargoyles were like in this edition and what they, how they changed, what did they add, what did they remove. When we get to third, that's, that's when Eberron sprang out of 3.5. So the lore they were working with at the time was the third edition version mm-hmm. and so on. So maybe we could spring from that. Yeah, absolutely. So you've done some research um, and digging into the history of the gargoyle as it lives in D&D. Yes. Did you did you do this research prior to the the writing of the ecology article? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, that that's the thing when it comes to um, these sort of projects. So let me start with how I got that article, and then maybe then I can use that to jump over to the origins of the whole thing. So at the time during you know when I was started to write articles for them, they, what the way the wizards did this is they for their for both Dungeon and Dragon magazines was they, they kind of had a predetermined list of what the, of topics they wanted to have articles about. And I think they released them like quarterly-ish 
They would periodically send out a list to their stable of freelancers. And then we'd all get to see what's on the list and basically pick the ones we want to like volunteer to take. And um, you wouldn't always get the ones you picked, but you'd probably get some of them and so on. And that's how I ended up doing the various ones that I did. So I've done um, some some location-based ones in Eberron. I did one on the Tarasque, which was super fun. That was not even an ecology of, that was like this, they called them history checks because that was the fourth edition mechanic, right? History check is kind of skill check. <laughs> so they call that history check. Um, I did a history check for the story of Corellin and Grumsh, the, the god of the elves and the god of the orcs, which is another super fun one. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so you'd, you'd pick which ones you want. And I, you could pitch your own idea, but you mostly weren't likely to get that unless it really won them over. I think they kind of, wizards kind of always knew what they wanted at the time. But once they kind of doled them out, once you got your pick, um, then they, you did have a lot more freedom than you'd think. I mean, Wizards has changed. They're always changing. And, and they're, they've often been frustrating because you're dealing with ever-changing opinions from whoever's like on the editorial team that you're dealing with. But, um, but they still generally gave you a lot of control, which was very cool. Um, so I, I'm trying to remember back, was Ecology of the Gargoyle on the list? And I honestly don't remember. It's just been too long. And I couldn't find like an email to prove one way or the other. <laughs> it's just too far back. It's like ten, literally 10 years ago or near it. So um, I might have pitched it on my own because I saw their ecologies listed and I'm like, I need to do the gargoyle. Like that was just, so if it wasn't on the list, then it's definitely one I pitched um, and got, and um, I probably made a case for why I don't, couldn't remember what my reasons would be. So then, then I'm like, okay, now I'm going to research it. You know, there's a lot of professional, great freelancers, but they're not always invested um, in what they're writing about. And I experienced that writing alongside like more established authors who are writing for Eberron, for example. And they're, they, they're used to writing as a living or at least a lot more than I was. So they would write their thing and move on, research only what they were told to research or whatever. But I'm not that way. I'm like, I grew up with D&D novels and with Dungeons and Dragons. So I want to research everything and like pay homage to this in my article. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm going to find every bit on Gargoyles. And so, you know, I had a number of the books. I had the first monster manual and all the, all the basic incarnations of them over the years. But I didn't just want to look off of their like monster manual entries. I wanted to like find where else do they show up and so on. So yeah, I was thorough about it. And I, and I tried to f- reference in my ecology article, I tried to reference every little bit that I could that, that came up before, even when it's like, you know, some theorize that this, but it's really this, like, but that some theorized bit is referring to something that was <laughs> yeah. in the older edition. I want to bring it up, but it, um, and I did the same thing with Corellin and, and Grumsh with their whole famous battle where Corellin blinds Grumsh and that's why he's only got one eye and all that stuff. Like I did the same thing because when you research it, you're like, wow, uh, TSR or, and then wizards have done different versions of this story. You know, in, in one old one, um, I think Grumsh is blinded with an arrow. I'm like, well, that's, that's different. I can't, he can't do both. He can't both cut his eye out with a sword and shoot it with an arrow. So how am I going to address that? But I found ways to do it. Um, so the same thing with Gargoyle, like, all right, I want to, I want to refer to the past lore. And so a lot of it, yeah, I think a lot of it made it into the ecology article. They, um, like I said, they do give you a lot of like creative control. Um, they don't, they didn't like, shape it too much or try to like change my words too much, which is pretty cool to their credit. They would, they would not hesitate to cut stuff. I don't know if it's for space or just certain areas they just don't want to go to. Uh, so they did, they certainly cut stuff, but, um, but for the most part, I had a lot of control. Um, so 
so yeah, so I researched the gargoyle. Um, and so with that, let me just jump back to kind of the, where it started. Let me just look at some of their beginning traits, because this is where I was starting, too, when I was researching. Um, so the original gargoyle from the Monster Manual of the late 70s. Okay, for starters, they're, they're evil from, like, from the start, chaotic evil. They're always dumb. They're always low intelligence, even though they didn't always assign like a number to that back in those days. They were always like sadistic bastards and would attack and torture and like they're just nasty to begin with. It's the original entry, so they will sometimes serve an evil master, but it was a little vague on that point. Um, and then tantalizingly at the end of the entry, it, it mentions the aquatic gargoyle, like with no detail. Like, yeah. <laughs> the, the Kapoa synth or something like that, um, which is a word I used in my Eberron novel. I found a way to use it. <laughs> <laughs> I love how uh, those older books will, would do that regularly, like yeah. just drop a totally left field yeah. piece of lore and can and not elaborate whatsoever. No, I know. I mean, some part of that makes it brilliant. Like it makes it super cool. Mm-hmm. And th- th- I mean, those are kind of plot hooks on their own. You don't always have to write a whole lot. I would not be good at that, at writing like succinctly, creatively in a way that lets the gamer the dungeon master like inspire them to invent their own stories like i wouldn't be good at that i want to overtell that would be my tendency but sometimes they did some stuff in the older stuff where you know where they had to cram a bunch of monsters onto one page and they'd find ways to just i don't know like the the information was a complete mishmash and uh from a design point of view kind of crazy but but stuff like that is is fascinating for example um this is totally random in the second monster manual under the entry for Mephistopheles, like the devil, the arch devil. <laughs> yeah. Just one of the lines is like, his voice is a whispering wind. And then that's it. There's no explanation <laughs> for why they mentioned that. And then, I mean, but it was like, I don't know, you hook onto it and you're like, what does that even, does that mean something? Yeah, it makes your brain explode. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know what I would associate that with? With uh, Stairway to Heaven because of the line Whispering Wind. I'm like, that's so cool. What does this mean? That I don't know. It's, it's just those old entries had a way of doing that. And that's why they're still cool today. Um, so anyway, that was the original Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Gargoyle. Um, oh, and then in the second Monster Mail, they, with, without a lot of explanation from a, like, from a design point of view, I don't know what they were doing. They, they have the Margoyle. Do you remember? Have you heard of that one? Well, it's, yeah, it's in your ecology article, but I, I don't remember it elsewhere. Originally, it yeah. So the Monster Manual Two has the Margoyle, and statistically, it's just a little tougher, a little stronger, more hit points, that sort of thing. It's the the illustrations are pretty cool, actually. Although it has no wings, which is sort of suggestive of like that had questions that it didn't answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, like gargoyles have wings; that's like their thing, but didn't um they were just a quote particularly horrid form of gargoyle and they it calls out then that their substance is so like stone that they're more chem like they're, they have better chemical logic against stone i'm like wait the originals weren't like i don't know they don't they don't explain it and you're like what it, you read into the what they choose to say and what they don't say they're the most gargoyle of the gargoyles yeah exactly and there's no explanation anywhere as to like why they're called that. I just assume, okay, mar, like to ruin or diminish mm-hmm. the perfection or wholeness of something. They're spikier looking. Or, like, but either way, they were just like, okay, that's a cooler looking gargoyle, nastier, whatever. Um, second edition came and then they made the monstrous compendium, which was that binder thing they did, which was fun and frustrating. Um, 
they didn't really change them much. The, mecha- the, the rule system didn't change a whole lot between that original Advanced Dungeons and Dragons and then the second edition. So um, what they did do is to have more page space for monsters, though. So there was a little bit more about their like habitat and ecology, which was great because that's the best. That's the good stuff. And that's when it's pointing out that they would like for the first time, it's pointing out, OK, they would sit. The gargoyles will sit motionless around the rooftop of a building waiting for prey to approach. Yeah, that specific like encounter advice, like specifically, yeah. this is how they behave. Yeah, which you know, originals don't have that sort of thing. Mo- I mean, not all of the time. And uh, yeah, it's it's that's helpful stuff. Like, mm-hmm. you know, especially when you're a kid. If you're a kid and like DM, you need help. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it might seem obvious, like gargoyle is a real thing that people know of, even outside of D and D. Sure, but like in the context of a fantasy world, wh- what could a gargoyle be? Right. Mm-hmm. So it's good to have that stated. And if I recall, oh yeah, and it's that second edition entry is the first time they begin to speculate about their origins. So I, of course, I pay attention to that sort of thing. So in that version, in the second edition, uh, monstrous statues were first. That came first. Rain spouts, you know, they're 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 made for the real real world reasons for having them. And then it says later, some unknown mage used a powerful enchantment to bring these horrid sculptures to life. So now they're a race. So the that came first. Statues came first. Then so then you know crazy wizards began to animate them, I guess. Now they're a race that can breed their own. Like that's, that's the first time that happened. Like they established that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Jump to third edition. Now we're, now there's more design and more like thought behind design than there used to be in third edition. You know, they go into, okay, they have dark vision and things that you would just sort of take for granted in the old editions. Yeah. Now they're trying to put rules in place for that. The second that's edition fine. is like, they took a, they took a stab at an idea. <laughs> Yeah. And then the third is like, okay, let's figure out how all these things fit together and what we need to like bolt onto them to make them do what we want them to do. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and also, I think it might be the first time it established that you need like magic weapons to hurt them or either that or they're, they're harder to hurt, right? right. Damage reduction, as they called it. And that's a cool mechanic that's, that's, you know, you're adding, you're attacking a stony creature or something like that makes sense. Yeah. That's something that's, that like settles arguments from previous editions yeah. that p- people probably right. had at the table, right? Yep, exactly. Um, oh, so third edition also added a new element. I've, I've been thinking about this a lot, even in your, your past episodes, because this is such a brilliant design um, that third edition added to all their monster entries that I don't think they've done since, and they never did it before. Um, organization is an entry in the list, like in the stats. And now that's an evolution of what used to be, which was called, they would just say number appearing, yeah. right? So you'd, you'd have some static Either some, you know, it would be one one monster at a time if it's like an illithid or something, mm-hmm. or if they're in a group. But they would never really explain that. When with third edition, by adding literally the line organization, it's not only adding possible numbers for a DM to work with, but it names that group, and that's so subtle but really helpful. I found. Mm-hmm. So, for example, a gargoyle is listed as solitary, okay, or a pair, okay, or a wing. Mm-hmm. A wing is five to 16. So now you've got a little mini pack of them. And it's just like, it's evocative because that alone, even without the wording, and third edition didn't have a lot of like lore in the monster manual for gargoyles. But at least by saying that, you've got, okay, there's some sense of like their socialization skills with themselves. How do they, you know, as a speed, you can start thinking of them as a species. I think that's so cool. Yeah, and you can it's it's poetic. Like it suggests mm-hmm. different things just based on that one word. Like it makes me think of exactly. like a jet fighter squadron or something or like a, yes. 
you know, like they, they're, they're comrades and they're hunting and they're swooping around above you. And that's all said in one word, which is very clever. Right. Yeah. And in fact, when you start, you know, elsewhere, I think it was after that they started, or actually I don't remember where they started, but the word, they would start to say gargoyle will hunt. And then they, they've always pointed out that they didn't need to eat, but they just kind of did it for sport. But like hunting implies some kind of, you know, if you're just individually going, okay, you're just a sadistic monster who wants to hurt things. But like, once you've mentioned groups and hunting, now you've started to evoke animal kingdom kind of behavior. It was, it was very fascinating. But, but like, that's just the, the, the gargoyle, like the idea of, okay, a wing of gargoyles, having a name to go with it. Like you said, it, it puts things in your head. And it's like, if you just leaf through the third edition monster manual, it's awesome. You'll, you'll, um, a, an umber hulk is, can be found in clusters. You know, um, <laughs> the, if you look at um, Rakshasa, Right, they're 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 solitary in in the in the monster manual, but if you look in the monster manual three, where there's like three new varieties of Rakshasa, they can be found as solitary or an entourage. Like uh, it's yeah. just evocative; it really adds flavor, right? Yeah, that is. I am so missed that sort of thing. Like they dropped that. Now fourth edition certainly didn't didn't have that because they they're all about stat blocks and very minimal and lore. Fifth, I feel like fifth edition could have come could could have brought this back and they didn't. I I, I missed that. Um, no, anyway, sorry. Uh, third edition gargoyle. So, yeah, the organization was like that was super cool to see that added. Um, now, now it's bringing up okay, what languages they speak? Common and Terran, right? So Terran is the elemental earth kind of tongue. Um, but it's like it made me think what what, what was happening before. I mean, it's, DM can just make it up. Can a gargoyle speak? Mm. But it wouldn't. You know, that's the needs of the game, right? That doesn't. I don't feel like you have to impose anything there. But it is. Having an entry for their language is just cool. Yeah, and that's a direction you go because it's like if you just make them like animated rocks, then they probably can't speak because they don't have any vocal cords or whatever. But now you're saying right. that even though they look like rock, probably mm-hmm. they're flesh underneath or some something similar. Something, something movable, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, like you know, to me, that makes me think. Okay, do, do, are they taught? Like obviously. Right. Do, uh, as much fun as it is to dig into monsters, I don't think at the same time that you have to like have those answers all like pumped into the monster manual, taking up page space. Obviously, some things you can just let individual campaigns work out. You mm-hmm. know, that's that's not a big deal. But it is. I always like the idea of having a, a little bit of information to work. So one of the things that third edition also added in the monster manual is for some creatures like gargoyles is stats. If you want to be a gargoyle character, like it's not a lot. <laughs> Oh, entry. But isn't that cool? Like that that was that was new. They didn't do that before. Like if you want to, here's how you'd modify your level, your stats, um, if there's any particular ability. It wouldn't take up a lot of space, but they would they gave that as an option. I think that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um I would have loved to do that as a kid. Like, oh gargoyle character. You don't even think of it otherwise. Yeah, exactly. I remember the first times getting into three point five and being like, Oh, you can play anything, really. Mm-hmm. And then it's supported in the rules somewhere. It may not be like very well balanced or designed, but like at least you can say yeah. you're like you're doing it. Yeah. Okay, so then fourth edition. And that's what I had to work with. So fourth edition made lots of changes across all of the cosmology mm-hmm. and the way they classified. That's the thing. It's like the classification yeah. of and and tying certain creatures and creature types to planes. This changed things. Now, this is good and bad. It's like there's a lot of limit. It creates a lot of limitations, but it also makes you think of things you hadn't thought of before. So I don't want to like attack it across 
the board because I think there's a lot of neat stuff that came from that. I not I was not crazy, never really have been with the like the re reworking of the cosmology. Yeah. Um the original was called the Great Wheel and it was like, you know, all the different planes. And the elemental planes were all considered the the inner planes, but they're, you know, the plane of fire was distinct from the plane of earth and so on. They, they were next to each other. You could go from one to the other and there'd even be quasi elemental planes like connecting them. So you could have between the plane of um, water and earth would be the quasi plane of mud. Like it's, it's, it gets a little silly, but it's, it's, it's kind of endless fun for, for a certain type yeah. of nerd to be like, Definitely. okay, what is uh, sand? What is quicksand? Is there an elemental thing of quicksand between earth right. and water or whatever? And you, you pass some time yeah. that way. <laughs> exactly. But with the fourth edition, they kind of banished, they just got rid of the, those elemental planes and just said, okay, they're all in something called the elemental chaos, mm-hmm. which had neat ideas in it. But at the same time, I didn't like it. It was just one big soup. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, you know, that was what I had to work with for this one, which was a little annoying. But then they then they mentioned in the text and in, in the in the lore somewhere in there, they said rituals can summon gargoyles to serve as guardians of locations or prisons or to hunt down people or items. Now that's cool. Um, previously, it was mentioned, you know, very brief mentions of like willing to serve another an evil master or something, predisposed to like guarding and all that. So it kind of worked. Mm-hmm. But here they're like, you can use a ritual to summon them and, and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. And the idea of hunting down people or items was cool. So let me use that then to mention how I used it in my novel. Because, um, well, I didn't invent this, to be clear. I did not invent this concept. I only invented one particular gargoyle that, that shows up. But um, in Eberron, um, gargoyles are more or less as they are here, like in general fourth edition. They didn't really change their nature too much. But the... Eberron setting has um, these institutions called Dragonmark Houses, as you might remember. Mm-hmm. And um, one of them is the House of Handling. So they, they're like the, the trainers of animals, but of all kinds of magical creatures. And they're also like, if you want, if you want to have like a, a dark side to your, um, to your game, which Eberron was good at like blurring the lines and being very morally gray here and there. Uh, so you could easily turn any of these dragon mark houses into like the evil corporations of modern stories, right? They're corrupt, money-driven kind of thing. Um, so they were less like also the house that would do like genetic experiments on humans and stuff like that. So you could do all <laughs> kinds of cool stuff. Anyway, mm-hmm. I, sorry, I will digress easily on everyone, especially. <laughs> um, in the city of Sharn, the city of towers, which is like a super tall, like miles high city built. Um, constructed in a what's called a manifest zone tied to the elemental plane of air so like it you it automatically had f- powers of flight were amplified so it allowed the weight of such towers to exist in this in this zone so you have this gigantic city it's like this the ultimate metropolis of a fantasy city and um and house of adalas the house of handling they've they've actually like tamed some gargoyles to be messengers so they're like they're like delivering parcels and mail like in the city of sharn and I just love that idea. I'm like, they're, and I love that they're, they're, you know, they're still kind of aggressive. They're, they're hunters by nature. They like to. Yeah, they look scary. They look scary. They, 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 like they, they look natural in an urban setting because of statues, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they just look cool. They fit visually, aesthetically, <laughs> but they can also deliver your mail. Like, I just thought that was brilliant. <laughs> Everyone is great like that. Yeah. So 
So I just, all, all it simply is, is I use a gargoyle as a, as a initial plot hook for my, my protagonist to receive a message or, or to receive a summons essentially to back to her detective agency where she works on something on a matter that's urgent. So like I start the scene with the point of view of a gargoyle who's like looking for her, like he's got instructions on what she looks like and all that. And so I get just for like one scene, I'm inside the head of a gargoyle and like trying to write it from their point of view and use Eberron style or Eberron um, ideas in it. And um, yeah, so that was like right there with, with the whole idea of uh, hunting down people or items. You know, that's just a little tiny piece of information that they used in that world. And then I'm like, I need to use that somehow. I like that a lot because it's uh, it's very noir. It's very noir. Like the, very. the gargoyle oh, so. is interesting to me because unlike many other monsters, it, it it lives like we get it's it's in our zeitgeist because it lives in our cities in very mm-hmm. public places where everybody sees them. Unlike a dungeon or a cave or wherever else, it's like yeah. it's it is kind of unique in that way. So using it as like it's a it's a it's not only a decoration that people in a city see all the time. You've got it like as a postal worker. Like it's so it's like, it's like terrifying yeah. and dangerous maybe, but it's also just like a part yeah. of life. And it's a great fantastical adaptation into like a noir city adventure. Definitely. And, and it's fun too, to imagine them, you know, they're, they're, they're trained and tamed. Like they're not, obviously they're intelligent enough to be reasoned with. And that's why they could do this in this particular setting. But they're, the aggression they naturally have is like, uh, was, is fun to work with too. Like when it shows up in the scene, it's sinister. And the, my main character is initially like defensive, ready, ready for the, an attack. Yeah. <laughs> so it looks like you're getting ambushed and it's just telling you you've been summoned. You know, it's, yeah. um, it's trying to deliver your mail. And <laughs> You lived in New York, right? I live in New York, yes. Yeah, it seems like a very uh, stereotypical New York kind of. Yeah, I mean, you're defend- aggressive city yeah. worker. <laughs> yeah, if something if someone comes too close to you, you're just you're on guard. You're you're naturally offensive. Yeah. Um. So anyway, that was fun, and I you know there's humor in it as well as you know the, just being appropriate to the gargoyle to give them a role in the larger scheme that's not just remote guardian of dungeon, you know, um, and. And and of course, like you like you're saying, they, they can be among us. Like that's the thing is they fit the gothic like motif. They visually mm-hmm. are awesome for that. So encountering a monster in a city and being a gargoyle is perfect. Um, in fact, that reminds me of one of the one of the plot hooks. So they at the end of the ecology article, there's like mm-hmm. a little section for like adventure ideas or whatever, and they did cut away two of my ideas and they only left two of them yeah that's how it goes um it's fine i i'm used to that so but i'll let me share you i'll read you my entry if i can yeah please so this is so i had i had two so i have two in there now one's called time capsule and it has to do with their stone form ability which we didn't really talk about yet and the other one is idle fears um so one of them i wrote is roving sentinel um so I wrote, uh, the adventurers have been asked to hunt a lone gargoyle that has been sighted clinging to the city's towers at night. No one has witnessed its attack, but a series of brutal murders have cropped up recently. In truth, the gargoyle is a benevolent one, touched by divine powers. It has been on the trail of a powerful shapeshifter, a succubus, doppelganger, or rakshasa that travels from city to city, leaving misery and corruption in its wake. 
the gargoyle isn't powerful enough to destroy the Rakshasa directly, but if it teamed up with the adventurers together, they might be able to put an end to the fiend's work. Problem is, everyone assumes the gargoyle is the killer and the shape changer is very good at what it does. So, like, that's the thing is it's, um, I had these very other... Cool. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and that was connecting to another thing that they cut out of the article, which, you know, again, it might've been page space. So like, I, I don't, I'm not like angry, but it's just a shame. Um, one of the other things, and this was an Eberron specific one. There's an entry that I had in there called wing weirds. Wing weirds are not my invention either. They were showed up in one of the Eberron source books. And they're specifically a variety of gargoyle that is, um, that has been like transformed into a goodly, like specifically goodly, um, good aligned uh, mm. guardian of temples of the silver flame. Silver flame is just a particular religion in Eberron. And so they guard their churches. So they're, they're like closer to the, how we like associate gargoyles in, in, in medieval history. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was using that to point out, okay, here's how wing weirds might exist in other settings as well. Um, uh, even in forgotten realms, I had an idea, like you could connect it to the God helm and so on, like just had different ideas. But um, because I always love the idea of you know the the oddball, like the one that's not going to do what you think it's going to do. Um, and the closest I got to it that made it in that like made the cut is um, oh yeah, in my in my uh towards the end I have a section on mutability because I was like really since element since gargoyles in fourth edition were originating from another, I thought okay if they're chaotic by nature. Then there, then there, there's a kind of flux here. Like you can have mutations. Yeah, there must be good ones eventually. Yeah, right. Statistically, there should be some possibility of something different. Yeah. And so I was just like emphasizing and and adding, like trying to emphasize that, that that gargoyles are mutable. Like they can just be changed if you catch them early enough in their development. And so I have a sidebar called "Not Carved in Stone," and then I have like, <laughs> here's the different ways that you know maybe there's one that's made out of crystal, maybe there's one that's it's, it's yeah, and you you make good use of a, a baking <laughs> analogy. That's yes. not quite an analogy. It's actually kind of true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Should I read that? I can read that. Yeah, sure. All right, I'll read that. I'll read that whole sidebar because I was going to get to the last <laughs> part anyway. Um, yeah, I don't think wizards will come after you. Nobody knows about this article anymore, um, or this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We're safe. <laughs> um, so my so the sidebar is called not carved in stone. So it says, the standard issue gargoyle coming out of the ovens of the elemental chaos is mean, evil, and dumb. It's full of instinct and avarice, but is still chewy and warm. The service and mutability section of this article addresses how other agencies manipulate them before they cool. Not literally, of course. Gargoyles aren't cookies, but it's a fitting and tasty analogy. Because gargoyles are so mutable, they're perfect candidates for the monster themes in Dungeon Master's Guide, too. Look, I'm promoting another product of theirs. Yep, got to do it. <laughs> I mean, they don't ask it, but honestly... Dance I, monkey. The thing is, well, see, they don't tell you to do that. I do it because no? I'm, they're, they're less... Oh, okay. No, 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 they're not... They don't do that sort of thing. They're not, they're not like... <laughs> screw but, I, but I bet they like that you did it. Screw it. They, well, they probably did. And honestly, I probably did that so that they would leave that section alone. Like I was uh, swore that they were going to take away my cookie analogy, but they didn't. Right. Uh, I was impressed. They left it. Anyway, so I said, um, okay, the demon-based themes are no-brainers. Look to the Nabasu, which is a whole thing of its own. But a Feywild denizen gargoyle might be more intriguing, perhaps one of the great archfey, such as the Prince of Frost, the Trinket Lord, or the Carrion King, fostered packs of its own. 
Now variants of the gargoyle can be found across the Feywild or throughout the Fey Dark below. How would a storybook gargoyle act? Limbed in fairy lights, guarding sacred forest groves, or cavorting with will-o'-wisps in swampy ruins, a Feygoyle could be great fun and might prefer a game of riddles over combat, or offer intruders a suspicious invitation to tea. So yeah, like, that's the thing, is I love the idea of, I mean, these are meant to be kind of plot hooks of their own, right? You can mm-hmm. take that, and why, why does your gargoyle have to be bad? Like, I always like to flip it, too. Yeah, it's funny, because it, you set up the gargoyle as, like, okay, we've already established in the Monster Manual that they're evil, yeah, and this is their origin, and you get into that, and then halfway through the article, you're like, and here are all the ways that you can get around that <laughs> including that that yeah. part that not carved in stone which is like an actual reader facing like right uh direct advice on how to do something like that so i think is great and like the true like these ecology articles would be kind of like almost useless without this kind of stuff like this is the meat of the whole yeah. the whole thing yep i think so and the other thing too and i don't know how like i can't speak to the other freelancers and like, i didn't really read all of the ecology articles that came out around it not that there were that many only a few yeah but um you know one of the things i i i'm working off i'm always looking back at the stat block and this is the fourth edition stat block and i don't want to like invent lore that doesn't match that in some way so yeah when i was writing the bit upon on, on like their 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 um, reproduction and like the way that they grow and, and all that um i decided you know obviously they've changed this in fifth edition they have a new origin which is fine. They, they do that all the time. But um, I, I suggested that, okay, we have a male and a female and then they don't, you know, they're not loving creatures. So they don't like, they stick together only long enough for eggs to be produced. And I wrote, <laughs> I wrote, um, okay, when the female becomes pregnant, she selects as, as secure a lair as she can find in assumed stone form for more than a year. Male stands guard spending much of that time in stone yeah. form. I like this all- part a lot. <laughs> But he also patrols the area a few times a month looking for signs of activity or intrusions. Now, the reason I'm bringing that part up, so I, I was just looking back through my own like writings of this because I couldn't find a lot of like my emails at the time with wizards and, and all of that, like how this all came. But I did find some of the notes at the time. And one of the editors pushed back on that a little bit, said, um, why don't they just stay in stone form all the time? Like stay guarding the, the female and like the eggs. All the time, since that's what gargoyles do, they sit and they sit still. And I'm like, I pushed back on that because I'm like, actually, when they're in stone form, they have tremor sense only out to 50 feet. They can't see very far. Like, I'm trying to use the mechanics that they, and I'm like, that's not as efficient a guard. Like, yeah, you need to be close, but from time to time, go look and see if there's anything coming in nearby, right? So that's the kind of like nitty gritty that I really get into with this sort of thing that I don't think I'm totally, yeah. And that makes sense. And it's funny because it's like, well, can't, he needs a smoke break or something. Like he's just <laughs> standing there. And I, what, what I really love about that line is that uh, I'm not sure you meant it to be a joke, but the, but it, it totally is in line with like they they they're doing their duty as parents, but like only because they kind of have to and it's a bare yeah. minimum. He patrols a few times a month. Yeah, <laughs> like that's so lazy. <laughs> yeah, because they still generally like to sit still. Uh, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, uh, but actually, you know what? We keep I keep referring to the stone form. I should mention this more specifically for people who might be listening who don't know what I'm talking about. So only in fourth edition, they gave gargoyles this like mechanical ability, stone form, in which they like 
go into a new mode that they're not in all the time. That's the thing. It's they can do it at will, but they they are not in that form when they're attacking you. So the yeah. idea is they it, the wording is the gargoyle becomes a statue. So it's literally transforming in some way from a stony like hide to actual stone, right? To a mm-hmm. and not just stone, but a very very hard stone. So it gains resistance. 25 that means you must do more than 25 damage to even chip it you know so like that's a big deal it's extremely uh durable and re- regenerates in that state um and then it has this tremor sense which is like it can sense vibrations that can effectively see you as long as you're making contact to the ground that it's in contact with so that's that's why i was like i if it's an effective guardian but it's not it's not going to see anything coming until it gets within 50 feet like so that's why I'm like, he needs to come out of that mode sometimes. Yeah. Or for a cigarette, whatever. <laughs> so, but anyway, um, yeah. So like that, that was a fascinating, like to me, that was, that's why I talked about stone form so much in this article. If I, if that was not an ability that they invented, they just made it, you know, relatively tough all around. Like they always did in all the other editions, including the, the most recent. And it wasn't just a special mode they would go in. Then I would not have like, come up with a lot of that stuff because i felt like their whole existence um their whole ecology honestly just like it, it seemed, seemed centered around this ability like and and then i thought and they didn't resist this like that they won't age in that state you know i think mm-hmm. i think that was my invention i don't think that was in the monster manual i don't think so because i i remember reading that in your article and i i don't remember reading that anywhere else yeah it's true that like uh Without that stone form, yeah. they would just be like a tough guardian. Yeah, and it's good to just to hone in on these like these these things that I don't know if it was maybe they're including them in fifth in uh, sorry they're including them in fourth edition monster manual to be like this is its power because it's a stone guy so we yes. gotta have stone things. But it's like if you're gonna make an ecology article or if you're gonna think about the monsters a little more closely, you gotta hone in on these these differences mm-hmm. and then extrapolate from there yeah what it means for them for like mentally and what else it could mean for them physiologically which is like you do a great job of in this in this article i think i love your description of um the physiology entry you uh uh, i'm just gonna read it yeah go ahead gargoyles are roughly anthropomorphic in form and most are the size of a human if not larger their skin has a texture of stone and is just as varied in appearance Typically, it resembles the dark gray of basalt. A gargoyle's hide might be porous or marbled, striated, or smooth. Although the creatures have internal organs, their anatomy is unusual, sheathed in indurated flesh. Their bones are as hard as rock, but much less brittle. Their vital fluids bear little resemblance to the blood of worldly creatures, having the consistency of wet sand. I love that part. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good, because you're going to want to, like, you know people are going to want to describe how they kill you know a dm is gonna like you you hit it and then it smashes we've all known and seen that but like the wet sand is like such a great little touch see i'd like to think that everyone who wrote an ecology article across the years was always a dm like i'd like to think that they were because you'd hope so if you if you're a dm you think of those things and you're like when you when it comes time to like you roll a critical hit against a gargoyle you're just gonna say it shatters in a million pieces like you know you could do that but um yeah, I don't know. I just, yeah, I think of that sort of thing. I mean, as a DM, have you ever been like describing the death of a monster and 
in the last second while you're in the middle of describing, you're like, what color is their blood? What color is their blood? <laughs> it's like, it's not in there. I mean, I'm the, I'm the yeah. type of nerd who, would have, who wouldn't have minded a thin little line on the monster manual entry that said blood color or something, you know? Yeah. Just something. A D6, a D6 death rose to like choose from. Yeah, because what, what happens if you don't define that is you're going to find varying descriptions of those things across like the novels if you read the novels. You know, if they come up, there's not always going to be an editor who's keeping that consistent. <laughs> so yeah, right, you know, yeah. different versions. I think of that a lot because I have dealt with like the good sides and the bad sides of uh, trying to be consistent in novel writing, even and like the depiction of a character or a monster type in a world where others are doing the same thing. It's like sandbox. You're all kind of in there, and you want to be consistent. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, oh yeah, and then later in that same section. You know, the idea, it's been established before in in almost all editions that they don't need to eat or drink or even breathe. And that's cool. Like they're, if they're so stony, like why would they need air? They don't have typical lungs and all that. But I did like the idea that they still kind of get some kind of sustenance from contact with stone or something like it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, obviously mechanically they regenerate in their stone form of fourth edition. But um Beyond that, like, you know, okay, they're magical. Sure. They can, you can, all you need to do is be magical to regenerate in D&D. But, um, yeah. but I like, you know, I like these ecologies are good to start thinking of monsters as in terms of species and like patterns of, in the, in the animal kingdom, the, the monster kingdom. <laughs> so, yeah. And it's nice, even though they're magical, it's nice to like have some sort of, it's, it's magic, but it's like physics also. They are absorbing yeah. minerals through. Yeah a fantastical means but it's still like a transference of energy definitely exactly which is kind of neat and it I, I find it interesting these the the feeding thing in particular with monsters because like that's that's a question that everyone needs to have answered it seems like there's this mm-hmm. monster and it's like okay well how does it make babies and how does it eat these are the two questions that we yeah. want to know i know and honestly if you're if you want to if you want an immersive experience, now you don't have to, right? Some some games are, are lighthearted and you don't need to overthink them. But if you're the kind of DM who wants to be as immersive as you can, then when you're dealing with a monster, it's good to try to get in the monster's head a little bit, you know? Oh, I was going to add, so what's fascinating is I loved, like once once I saw that they had that stone form thing and then it dropped away again, right? In fifth edition, there's no special form they take. They're just They're just good at standing still. Like they're no different physically anymore. And that's not bad. Like, that's cool. But like, we had this taste of them doing this interesting new regenerative, super hard, like you could knock a gargoyle off its perch in a stone form and it might not hurt it too much, you know? Yeah. It, pre- it presented an interesting problem yeah. and a unique thing that only it could do, which makes it like, well, this is why this is its own entry. Right. I like to under physiology that you've um, highlighted that they kill for sport, not sustenance. Yeah, but that was kind of already implied. Like that's not right. I didn't really invent that. I like the. Well, I don't know. I, I like that it is. I like that it's there because it means we know them as guardians, but yeah. they're meant to be sort of scary, and you're meant to be uneasy just looking at them. The idea being, it's not even trespassing that'll make them come after you. It's like if they are bored enough or have had a bad day. Yeah, yeah, and I think they had. I know that there was something before about that. Like they, they don't need to eat, but they do. They, they would, they would go and eat things just to cause pain. But like, I remember th- reading that and thinking that doesn't mean they need to eat them. So it, it, I remember thinking, okay, that 
the wording is odd because that would mean like that's a good reason to rend and bite. But eating, I, I, I feel like we're missing some information. Does it kill them first, or is it? Does it specifically want to only start eating when they're still alive? Like it's, it's gruesome, <laughs> but I felt like that's the implication. Is it's like they will feast on creatures just to inflict pain, but I just feel like there's more to that story they're not giving you. So, yeah, and that's always the mark of like a particularly. Uh, fearsome predator is like and it eats you its <laughs> victims are alive yeah when yeah. it begins to eat final shock yeah so in fifth edition right so they they've gone back they speak terran which by the way previously they spoke common and terran now they're back to speaking just terran which is interesting um and then of course the stone form is gone but they can maintain that state physical physiologically the same all the time um a little bit more about them serving intelligent masters or even demons. Powerful spellcasters can enlist them. So they're just prone to be card guards at that point. Um, but mm-hmm. then you see the fifth edition has a sidebar. They do give them a new origin altogether, which is they tie them to the creation of, uh, which I don't, I know that's the kind of thing where I don't wish, I wish they didn't do that. I wish they didn't pin it down so surely because then that feels like it's less um, changeable per setting, per, per campaign world. Right, so it, it, it's that kind of wording means okay. You're it's it's assuming that as design, the gargoyle is exists in a world where the elemental evil creature named uh, Ogremok exists, and they're just like he just sheds these shards that become gargoyles. Now, I mean, it's in, visually it's pretty cool, but it's just one origin, and they're telling it to you what it is for sure. Yeah, it's kind of like the second edition thing of just like here's one person's initial stab at one idea you can use. But when it stands on its own, then it's like, I guess this is the official direction we're all supposed to take. Yeah. Which is why the ecology article, one of the things I like about these things is that it it's within a short amount of space, very few words that you suggest yeah. like four or five different possibilities. Yeah. Yep. Give give tools for, for a DM, basically. Mm-hmm. Um but I noticed something else in the monster manual. This is funny. I know you guys have criticized rightly you've made some funny observations about like the the presenting like the way they present information there's weird inconsistencies or at least inexplicable reasons for saying certain things and then sort of moving on without (laughs) and 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 i found one that's this isn't necessarily inexplicable but it's puzzling to me when you're when you're studying these things so if you look under the entry for genie which i i assume is your next entry (laughs) after gargoyle um, oh yeah. There's, next to the illustration, um, there's a little a little scroll quote. You know, there's like these little flavorful quotes. Oh yeah. So the one for the genie, uh, the the da- Deo. I guess oh yeah, it's written by a gargoyle. Yeah. Now <laughs> let me let me let me read this for a second. Okay, I don't know if I'm going to say any of this right. Welcome to the great dismal delve, gem of the inner planes. You are now slaves of the mighty and merciful Katun Zafara. Al-Yil-Jin Zarein, Queen of the Mantle Depths, Pontiff of the Diamond Cathedral, Protector of the Malachite Scepter, and so on and so forth. Gargoyle Seneschal, Standard Greeting. Okay, they have six <laughs> intelligence. They are dumb. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking that's like, maybe that's all he had to memorize, like forever, that particular gargoyle. I don't know, it's just funny. Yeah, to he's me, just like a Walmart greeter who says this <laughs> to everybody. Yeah, I mean... That in itself, that little flavorful thing, which I'm sure was written by someone who wrote the genie entry and did not write the gargoyle entry, like there's a, that sort of mismatched thing. 
it's mm-hmm. very cool. Like in itself, that's a little plot hook. It begs questions because there's no mention of like there's mention of them being guards, but but that's like that makes me think this gargoyle is wearing something fancy, like he's got a uniform <laughs> or something. You know, like you yeah. said, he's a Walmart greeter. He's he's got a smock. There's a, there's just something in, and that's so much more. Suddenly, that gargoyle becomes way more interesting than the entry that they just gave you, right? Yeah. There's so so now it's like not a diplomat, but like. Yeah, he's doing a diplomatic thing. He's the he's like the protocol droid, except he's a gargoyle. Honestly, it's more Eberron esque right there. And that and that makes me think that one is not a six intelligence gargoyle. That one's a little smarter somehow. Yeah, it's the inconsistencies in the uh like where different people get their influences from. Like the Tao especially is kind of like a thousand and one Arabian Nights. Yeah, like an earthy type one type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. This like messenger guardian dog it's more mythical and, yeah. and fun and then like totally different from the, the the it's funny that the gargoyle entry is immediately before right. that <laughs> i mean obviously so you might you might not notice the difference except that they're right next to each other yeah yeah i mean a few people are necessarily reading this cover to cover in order like you guys are <laughs> <laughs> but nor should they <laughs> But I mean, honestly, things like that, if, you know, I, I don't want to be a critic, but like if I was the editor for Monster Manual, that's the kind of thing I would want to notice. I'd be like, whoa, interesting. You mentioned here you have this seemingly relatively intelligent gargoyle. Uh, it's a little flavorful quote. Obviously, it's not a, it's more, it's, it's half joke. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't like all of them. I mean, I've, <laughs> there are some in here that I just can't stand. Um, what's the, not to di- digress on this, but. What was the, I think the one for the Oni is really cool. And then there's one that I can't stand. Um, <laughs> hold on, I got to find it. Yeah, I want to hear that one. I got to find it. Hold on, I can find it. And to be clear, I want to, uh, I agree that we these criticisms are funny and I will not stop making them. <laughs> but just if you had a hand in the D&D Monster Manual, uh Thank you, and good job overall. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, the yeah. fifth edition one is one of the one of the best. Yeah, um, <laughs> don't want to seem ungrateful for my source material, you know. No, but you know what? Part of being a big fan of something is being able to to make fun of it. Um, yeah, I'll, and I'll I'll unintentionally use that as a slight segue for like well, the other thing that I'm doing myself now, which is like. Plug plug whatever you're doing. (laughs) I didn't mean to, but I'll segue there. So being able to make fun of what you love is is part of fandom, I think. And that is one of the things I do with Tolkien studies. Um, And so that's, yeah, like part of my thing is like, I've written a ton of articles discussing the works of Tolkien on Tor.com. And almost all of them, if not all of them are like very heavy on humor, like on purpose, you know, partly making fun of it, but like in a very lovingly way. <laughs> That's my hope. You know, you, if you're really into something so much, then you, 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 you can enjoy it in, in all levels, even the funny parts, you know, parts that mm-hmm. weren't necessarily intended to be. Um, and so I like to poke fun at Tolkien, even as I'm going into and trying to convince people to read it. Cause I think it's amazing. It's all this good stuff. Um, Okay, yeah, the plug. <laughs> Here's my plug then. <laughs> um, so yeah, I one of the th- series that I wrote on Tor.com was the Silmarillion Primer. 
which was like about 30 articles that it just walks, you know, it takes the position of, hey, you're new to the Silmarillion because you have found it challenging, found it too difficult. You're one of the people who thought it was a slog or you just had a difficulty with it. Um, I'll walk you through it with charts and pictures and jokes and, and all that stuff. Like that's the, that's the premise. And that was back in 2017 now. So that's a few years old. But um, my, I got involved with um, Signum University, which is an online, like graduate level university um, that's focused on literature and speculative fiction and language. Um, I'm not like a scholar and I'm not a, one of their students or anything like that, but I did kind of keep running into them in different Tolkien circles. So um, last summer, they invited me to come give a keynote speech to to one of their their annual conventions and from that um they said hey how about we're going to start up a new press of our own signum university press they said how about we make a book of your primer your silmarillion primer and which is not a thing i ever considered before like people had asked but i'd be like oh that sounds complicated like <laughs> like cop <laughs> logistically complicated when it comes to like rights and all that stuff mm-hmm. And, it, and, and the truth is, it's still, there are still pending issues about that, but I'm not the only one for whom that kind of thing is a question. There's other books they're putting out that also have the same kind of like, they, they kind of need the scrutiny and approval of the Tolkien estate. Um, and, and also uh, HarperCollins, which is the you know, official publisher of most of those books, just to make sure we get there okay that, hey, we're going to put up a book that's going to make some quotes here and there and refer to the same thing. My point is that the Silmarillion primer, the idea is I'm trying to encourage people to go buy the Silmarillion. So like, I hope I'm giving them business. <laughs> that's my stance. I hope it's, I hope they understand that. And that's why I'm hoping there aren't any other, like there aren't any complications with it. But um, currently I'm basically in the process of revising all of the articles that were originally just freebies on tour.com. And they're still there, by the way, they're all still available for free. They're not, that's not going away, but they're being cleaned up, fixing the errors drawing new pictures and maps and diagrams and stuff like that. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing now. And um, I couldn't tell you the exact release because that keeps kind of getting pushed a little bit. Yeah. Based on other, other publishing is out of here. (laughs) (laughs) And I work for one of the, you know, one of the top five big ones and they, you know, I see it all the time and they're much more like, they're just massive and organized. Whereas Signum University Press is a small, like very love of labor, but kind of endeavor. And now that said, they've got some like big name Tolkien scholars and like luminaries of the industry. Like it's impressive. Like I'm, I'm continually humbled writing anything that's going under the same banner because these people are like true scholars and I'm not. <laughs> I just like to make jokes and read read as a very enthusiastic man. Well, they need that too. They do. I hope so. Well, and they what they've done is they've created several imprints within the within that press and and there's one that's like hard scholarship or whatever. Um mine is under an imprint called Eagle and Dragon and it's under popular scholarship. Like that's, that's that works for me. Yes, that's that's what I am. <laughs> Children's scholarship. <laughs> because I'm gonna make jokes. Uh, yeah. So um anyway, that's ongoing now. And um but but the way that they're doing it as well, on top of it, is that Signum University Press uh has a uh, uh I don't what I don't want to call this. It's a kind of a program where it's it bears resemblance to 
Patreon and Kickstarter without being anything quite like those. Just con- conceptually, it's the same where it's you can kind of like be a benefactor to the project. So, and they call that author, author circle. So, like if you join the author circle, then instead of just waiting for when the book eventually comes out, mm-hmm. or you could subscribe to like when it when it starts to release in a serial fashion, then there'll be like ebook installments will be dropped. But mm-hmm. but more involves if someone wants to join the circle, they can pay more, but then they actually involved in a monthly meeting with me and we talk and we I can share my maps and get their opinions. And it's just like, they're part of the process. Um, it's, that's an oh, entire, interesting. Okay. Yeah, it, it, it's still new to me and I'm like the middle of it, which is a little awkward, but at the same time, very humbling and fun. And it's, it's, yeah. it's cool having like strangers who I'd never ever met come onto a Zoom call every month and like, I'm going to walk through some of the recent chapters that they got to read and talk about it with them. And um, show them my maps and get their opinions and change my mind based on what they said. And like, it's, it's very cool. It's not, I would never have thought of that. And I would not the kind of person to like want to go create a Patreon for this sort of thing or anything. like. Right. That. Well, it's sort of like, um, you know, authors today are asked to do all their own marketing and their own yeah. promotion and stuff. So this is a nice way of like kind of meeting you halfway where they provide the framework for it at least. Yeah. And part of it's because the press is still it's just getting started and don't have the big budgets. The idea is that it, this puts some of the, this, th- that membership is split between the author and then the, the, the publisher so that they can start to upfront, you know, acquire art and everything. So I've got like cover art just working on the cover now. And, and later on, I'll have interior art for like some cool illustrations that go in the middle and whatever. So those, the, the term they use is defraise the costs. Uh, so, and I, I've come to understand that. <laughs> Um, and just roll with it. Basically. I'm like, I'm kind of along for the ride as much as the author circle members themselves are, but it's, it's been, it's been very fun and it's gonna, and it's only, and it only got started in like December. So every month, um, I'm meeting with the same people and, you know, constantly asking for feedback and all that sort of thing. So anyway, that's what I'm doing currently. That's the only writing project I have going on right now. Oh, it's a big one. Yeah, it's huge. It's really big. In the end, there's probably more a bigger word count than the actual Silmarillion, but it's, yeah, well, that's, you know. <laughs> but it's easier to read, and it hopefully will encourage people to tackle the, the harder stuff that that is just that is amazing. Like at the end of the day, is for all my jokes, I just I'm sort of blown away by the more I there's just so many layers to to Tolkien's writing that I get into, and I follow a bunch of podcasts, and it's just a never never ending amount of lore. And yeah, uh, yeah. Now, say so the only thing that um that Middle Earth doesn't have is gargoyles. There's no place for them. It's a shame. <laughs> he didn't use gargoyles. Well, they are a uh, <laughs> Wizards of the Coast will not let gargoyles. Like Wizards of the Coast owns gargoyles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Catholic Church pays them a lot of money. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tolkien Tolkien's got vampires and werewolves. They're very different, but they're, they're mm-hmm. he has them. But but no gargoyles. Do they fall in love? What? what do they fall in love who vampires and oh god vampires and werewolves do, do they do do they do, <laughs> un, do they do underworld no they do not do underworld yeah. stories or or twilight stories Unta- <laughs> untapped market so we've been talking for a good while i think we've dug pretty deeply but i wanted to know i meant to, i was going to ask you earlier you're on a great role but i didn't want to interrupt it mm. why were you so excited about gargoyles in particular you said when you saw them listed, you were like, yeah. that's the one I got to do. And I'm curious why that was. So, um, 
I have an inexplicable fondness for gargoyles. <laughs> I don't necessarily know why. I, I mean, I've kind of always seen them, and I, I'm fascinated by their history, which is kind of murky. Like, there's a bunch of explanations for gargoyles, and they're probably all valid to some way. Like, the classic origin is that you know they're there to scare away evil spirits or whatever from churches, but that's it's so much more than that. Like, some uh, medieval churches, you know, they would the idea of depicting um, like demonic creatures on their building is to sort of like warn their congregation who are illiterate at those in those times, <laughs> you know, what 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 awaits them if they don't, you know, come to church and that sort of thing. Like there's just lots of different stuff, uh lots of different um origin elements for gargoyles in real life that are just all fascinating. Um when I was a kid, so my my father was in the um in the United States Army and we moved around all the time. Like I was just I'm an army brat. So we mm. lived in when I was four, so this is the um, early 80s, I was, uh, we lived in Europe and um, specifically just outside of Mons, Belgium. And the cathedrals and chapels and stuff there have gargoyles. So I like, I've always known about them, even as a little kid. And I, I just, they're just blurry images in my memory now. But like, I remember asking about them and I'm pretty sure my dad said they came alive at night. Um, just things that fire the imagination. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Dad. Yeah. Hey, but it's helped. Um, you know, and uh, so I don't know. I, I, I just think there's something cool about them. I love the idea that they're stoned during the day. And like, if, if you know the Gargoyles cartoon, of course, I love that too. But that came way later. Like that was a, mm-hmm. that, yeah. So I kind of keep recreating Gargoyles in, in everything I can for some reason. One of the projects I did um, probably just before or around the same time as I was doing these Wizards of the Coast articles, um, is I had organized a an ex- sort of indie experimental uh, book project, uh, an anthology, cyberpunk anthology. And I say experimental because it was a book and a CD. So my brother's a musician. He knows a bunch of musicians. I was an author. I knew a bunch of authors. We kind of just came up with this thing, and it's it's um, it's... I don't know if you could still get a hard copy anymore. I'm pretty sure you could get an ebook of it. It's called Foreshadows, The Ghosts of Zero. And it's, so it's very um, cyberpunk, although most of the authors were like fantasy writers. So it's like fantasy writers doing cyberpunk, which was funny because it, we it wasn't very hard sci-fi. Uh, but anyway, the reason I'm bringing this up, if you see the cover, which we could share later at some point, if you want to, I'll be happy to post it up on the, on the Facebook page. Um, the cover, I... We, me and the others in the uh, project um, hired um, the same artist who did my Eberron novel cover, Michael Comark, who's amazing, um, to do the cover for that book. And on it is essentially like a, you know, Blade Runner-esque nighttime city. And in the corner is this gargoyle-ish figure, which fa- factors into my contributing stories in the anthology. So I I was like conceiving of an idea of what would a cybernetic modern gargoyle that's like one part frankenstein one part golem uh you know with with gargoyle inspirations what would that be like in a, in a modern world so like i you know it's it's the gargoyle theme again like it's me finding another excuse to do something with gargoyles that's more sci-fi and modern so yeah you know sometimes you just can't explain your muse <laughs> yeah you know definitely and i don't think you weren't alone because like you said the gargoyles 
uh, cartoon show came out. Like, I don't know. You must have been. I was like. It was. I, I want to say 1994. Right. Yeah. So it was like there's something about them, and like I think you're a little bit older than I am, but not mm-hmm. by much. Like there's just something in our general age group zeitgeist that was like, we like gargoyles. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> they're they're gothy and urban, and they're I don't know they're the the monster of the late 90s. Yeah, you're right, and they're not. Um, there's something. This goes back to what you said earlier, like the whole Among Us thing. Like there's. If you look in a in a fantasy world like D anD D, you've got monsters that are always in the wild. They're in dungeons, and yeah, you can have a gargoyle in the dungeon too. But you don't have a gargoyle in the desert very often. You don't have a gargoyle yeah. in the forest. I mean, you can. There's great reasons you could come up with that, but they're always in civilization. That's that's the yeah. fun of it. And I, you know, one of the things I point out in in I think in one of the sidebars of the ecology article is, you know, make sure you don't overplay the gargoyle like let there be legit stone statues (laughs) don't make every time you like the first time players see a a gargoyle it'd be a real one that's going to attack them like you want their guard down you want to make sure you establish that there are actual monstrous statues in existence first (laughs) if you can um yeah that's a great um section of the article because it deals with a a a problem that would come at the at, at almost anyone's table when you use statues. Yes, because players are naturally oh yes afraid of statues always. Yeah, yeah I, right. And and when I use statues in in games, I rarely make them like golems or animate. You know, I I, I want them to be part of the puzzle or something. Um, yeah, but there's that chance they could be animate, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it makes it fun. Uh, and so gargoyles, they, they, yeah, you know, that's part of it. Gargoyles fit to me into the realm of golems, and golems also fascinate me. And so do, and so I'm a big fan of Frankenstein. There's something about the construct. Now, gargoyles are not strictly constructs, but they're close mm-hmm. enough. You know, they, 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 by not resembling organic material, they, they fit into that side of the mm-hmm. Venn diagram of monsters. So and I like that. I don't know why. There's definitely this thing I like about constructs, or um, I guess I suppose it fits into the robot side of things too. If you're looking at more fantasy or sci-fi elements, but um, inorganic. It's almost like the topic of AI or just uh, yeah. something that's not human but is shaped like us, but still does stuff. I, I, there's something very cool about that. Yeah, it's a more modern kind of monster. Yeah, there's a bunch of D and D monsters that go into this sort of thing too. Um, it's funny it, you're, you're in a few years when you get to medusa mm-hmm. love that there's, bit. there's there's um there's a lot that goes into that topic too i think uh because even though that's an entirely different sort of origin and it is an organic type creature it's that stone thing again it's it's the, the what kind of um culture exists around a creature that can work with and render stone like that right and re- revert into stone and pull out of stone. It's just, there's so many cool concepts there. I guess you have yet to get to Golem, and that alone is just a, a <laughs> big topic. <laughs> yeah, one step at a time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Man, you're going to take forever to get to Zombie. You know, or I'm going <laughs> to, I say this every so often, but I really mean it this time. We're going to do it. We're going to do it regularly. Yeah, you gotta have to like establish a routine about this somehow to make that happen. It's hard. I know. It it, it is hard. (laughs) You know what? If it's any consolation, like digging into the digging into something slowly 
you're not alone in that. Like one of the one of the Tolkien um, podcasts I listen to regularly is uh, uh, is exploring the Lord of the Rings, and the Tolkien professor Corey Olson is the one who runs it, and you know he's it's like a little class, and he <laughs> he is every episode, which is I don't know once a week, he goes about two paragraphs of the, <laughs> of the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, he's done it. He began years ago. And he is, and they are now approaching the minds of Moria. Like, it's a regular, yeah. it's a running joke, but it's also very serious. It's going to be years and years for this to get through. But, but you, a slow reading of something gives you an intense study of it, and it really does change the experience. So, granted, you may not meet often to discuss the monsters, but like not doing this at breakneck speed is fine too. Like, don't don't feel like you got to tear through it because then you're going to miss a lot. You know? I appreciate that, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> don't take that as like encouragement to, to like take your time either. I'm not saying uh, that. Yeah, I'm I'm properly I, fired up. Because if you were I, if you had a, some kind of regularity to it, you could probably ramp up more like more you know audience. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Because um, it's such an interesting topic, and there's lots of people love monsters. It's it's just need that awareness. Yeah. That's the struggle. <laughs> but we're doing it, man. Yeah. I'm not going to give up. Totally. We're almost at uh, your hard out time, and we've talked for a good while. So I'll leave it there. Thank you so much cool. for doing this. This was uh, a lot of fun. Yeah. And I would love to do it again, maybe sometime. Yeah, it's been awesome. Thank you for having me here. What an interview. <laughs> what an interview. Uh, thank you, Jeff. That was great. Thanks for doing a lot of my work for me, because now we can talk about the real world of the gargoyle. Where do we get gargoyles from? First of all, uh, we can talk about the etymology derived from French. We get the word throat, English word throat, from the French word uh, gorge, and the precise purpose of gargoyles in architecture, is to act as a spout to, co to convey water from the upper part of a building or roof gutter and away from the side of walls or foundations. Oh, that's got to be where gargle comes from too, right? Yeah, yeah, gargoy. Sorry, I'm just, uh, my, I, I wrote down that gargoy means throat, but it doesn't. Gargoy means gargoyle, <laughs> but the root word is gorge or gorge, which is where uh, that whole, which is where that, that family of words comes from. Gargling, gargoy. These are these are throat words.
so the common parlance of the term gargoyle has come to mean any fantastical or mythical figure used for ornamental purposes, but the strict architectural usage only applies to those serving as a waterspout. Otherwise, they are known as grotesques, chimera, or boss. So I've never heard of boss or really chimera used. Uh, chimera, to me, has a more specific meaning of like a multi-part animal. But uh, grotesques, I'm more familiar with. So there you go. Um, most things you think are gargoyles aren't. <laughs> um, I might be looking at the same thing as you right now, but uh, there are also regional variations, such as the hunky oh, yeah. punk. Yeah. <laughs> or hunky punky. Yeah. Hunky punks are often short squatting figures, typical of those. Fa- yeah. Same. <laughs> Um, yeah, hunky hunky punks are like sh- short squat um, little statues that sit on corners, I think. And the earliest forms of gargoyle can be found in ancient Egyptian architecture. And they were typically in the form of lion's heads. And these were like water spout, like yeah. functional gargoyles. Yeah. Yeah. They appear in the construction of many medieval buildings in fortresses and castles, but they're much usually pretty simple. And they... Uh, the builders were just kind of you have to project the water out some way so they got fit like for fun and f- fanciness originally i believe knowing human nature just like made them throats yeah so either that or like like there's all kinds of there's there's no definite answer as to why people did this <laughs> like like yeah. you can just make a spout right but you have to if you're carving a building and you're trying to make it look nice but you need to get yeah. rid of water I think your options are limited at what, like, unless you have another way. So eventually they got rid of them in, at least in England in uh, 1724, the London building act made the use of downpipes a compulsory feature on all new construction. And subsequently the inclusion of gargoyles in architecture fell into decline. So it was like an architectural decision that kind of got rid of them. So then downpipes. Right. So instead of having it spray the water out, into the air on the side of the building it's like well we'll just bring it down to the ground and once they're doing that it's like well there's no point in making them look like critters anymore yeah exactly there was the uh no need for them but they were uh in an ornamental form they kind of were revived by the art deco period um you can find them in the chrysler building there are grotesques on the chrysler building and that's also uh we're talking about like the batman animated series they're there. Um, you can see Art Deco uh, gargoyles with like the um, straight projections, long necks, and the the kind of draconic uh, face. Yeah. Well, Gotham City is often, especially in that animated series, but is often a very like Art Deco place. Yeah. So yeah, that makes sense. And it's a really good um, example of how Art Deco is inspired by gothic architecture as well yeah. kind of like a streamlining of gothic architecture and then with the popularity of that it sets the perfect place for the gargoyles tv show yes um the the etymology of grotesque is kind of neat as well it is i almost feel like sorry i know i'm, I'm getting yeah. off here but i feel like what we have been calling like really the monster gargoyles should be called grotesques <laughs> Right, but gargoyle. They don't shoot water out of their mouth. Well, that would be kind of funny. Water. That would be kind of funny, and that would really draw a lot of elemental planes together. Because you got a rock guy who can fly and spits water. That's oh yeah, 
you put some kind of element of fire in there and you've, you've got a whole you got a whole whole thing going on well there's actually um where's the story there is a precedent for fire being involved let me find this here Ah, yes. So, the myth of Gargoy. According to a French legend, Saint Romanus saved his country from a dragon named La Gargoy. After defeating the creature, Saint Romanus burned its body. However, since the dragon had possessed the ability to breathe fire, its head and neck could not be burned. Therefore, they mounted La Gargoy's head on the wall of a church and used it to scare off harmful spirits. Great. So there you have the... Yeah. Uh probably backwards uh explanation (laughs) that's cool um you were gonna say the etymology of a grotesque i think oh yeah but i still i love the idea of a instead of the gargoyle being a earth elemental it is an elemental possessing all four uh characteristics elemental un un, undivided (laughs) yeah i don't think I've, i've seen anything like that I mean, I'm sure there are in other editions, but I'm, I don't think in 5th edition that I've encountered, I'm not totally up to date. Uh, I mostly, for reasons um, that should be obvious, I'm mostly dealing with the 5th edition first monster manual. So I do I do like the idea of like, you, you've got like air elementals, water elementals, but what about just an elemental, you know? Like it's, it's, it's the elements. <laughs> it's all of, of all of them? Yeah. I don't. I have no idea what that would be. <laughs> What's a gargoyle? What's a gargoyle? Yeah, I was also kind of thinking about like that's. If it if it can breathe fire, then it's a gargoyle. Then you got all four. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, but that's if you're limiting it to four. That's true. Um, there's also you know you've got the elemental plane of mud. <laughs> you've got those crossover yeah, planes. Yeah, then you fall into this this quagmire. There is a there in a, in in um I think I've got. I forget from what edition it was, but somewhere kicking around, I've got a, a manual of the planes from an earlier edition, and it mentions how there's an elemental plane of salt. <laughs> like, it gets into such yeah. weird granular detail of all the crossover areas, which has been retcon. That's not really a thing anymore, but unless you want it to be, it can be. Yeah, you can keep subdividing, because it is fun to do. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm really landing on this gargoyle for the four corners of elements thing. I really like that. Because there's nothing like it, it, you get to use pretty much everything that is already in the in the gargoyle. You just allow it now to shoot water or fire from its mouth. Yeah, yeah. Or I like the idea also of like a gargoyle. A gargoyle's job is not just to guard, but it redirects water from somewhere that doesn't. It's like its master doesn't want water to be. So like Strahd's castle. <laughs> yeah. No matter where the gargoyle is, like rainwater shoots out of its mouth. Yeah, because well, like, he's a vampire. He can't have running water in his castle. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's he has to so send the need... gargoyles like out back to go. Got to be they got to be spitting off the side of the castle. <laughs> yeah, or even like further away. Like when it rains, the gargoyles have to leave the castle, go like a mile down the road, and like throw it up into a into a tributary. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that's why people made? Uh, like so back as far as ancient Egypt, like why they they made these water spouts look like 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 animals, just because it's kind of funny to imagine like things puking all the time. I mean, that's an element, right? Like you see, you see grotesque, not the architectural feature, but like the the adjective. You see grotesque statues as often as not. We just don't like put them in history books. Yeah. 
as much. <laughs> but like I was thinking like it would be if you're going to uh put some style into a spout, you either have to be like you have to make like an interesting geometric shape somehow, which is probably beyond the imagination and skill of like early stone workers. Or you do what they did, which is make it like a head and water shoots out. And then that's just like a funny uh, thing. Yeah. Or you make it a phallus. And that's even funnier for some yeah. people. <laughs> and is has like precedent in like little, you can find like water features of cherubs, like peeing out the water. Oh yeah, that's a classic. But like your average uh, like fortress builder or church maker is not going to want that. So I think landing on uh, creature heads makes the most sense. And a serpentine, yeah. so like a semi-draconic creature with like a long yeah. neck makes sense. And a lot of a lot of them, a lot of like grotesques and gargoyles, like they, they look very similar to those drawings you would find in like, a, you know, um, uh, Middle Ages books. But like these are what, this is a, a, a hippopotamus from the continent of Africa. And it looks nothing like a hippopotamus, it's like a weird monster because people yeah. didn't really know what animals look like if they weren't like European animals. And so... I think a lot of like the the design of like the the these like demonic sort of monsters things the people are just um trying to make you know hyenas and hippopotamuses and warthogs based only on like game of telephone verbal descriptions that they've heard because nobody could seen a picture of anything yeah. and so like a lot of the weird statues are probably like no no this is a real animal I've just never seen it yeah exactly and that's the um the these gothic cathedrals took off in the renaissance era when artists were trying to incorporate a lot of um myth into their work so even though it was a church they're still trying to incorporate like antiquity and myth yeah. and uh yeah. possibly even pagan elements and these served to kind of like soften the to sell people on christianity is like well we're incorporating these things that you like are kind of familiar with already yeah. They're on the church, so like it's not too scary. Why don't you come inside? And the actual um, like grotesques themselves. So this is a good segue into the etymology. The word is derived from the Italian. I don't know how to speak Italian, so this is a guess. Groteschi, uh, groteschi, referring to the grottoes in which these decorations were found, circa fifteen hundred, during the excavation of Roman houses, such as the Golden House of Nero. Oh. And then grotesque decoration was common on 17th century English and American case furniture also is a uh, little aside. But the, the 1500 um, excavation, so you find Rome, Roman houses and uh, Roman sculptors had made grotesques. And then like everything Roman, uh, people in like post-medieval uh, Europe are like, we got to have it. The Romans had it. This is how you make civilization. So then we started putting grotesques everywhere. Because it was a nod to antiquity. And then I think, I, I believe, having like trying to dig into this, that the any interpretation of the gargoyle architectural reason for existing is true. Like it's either it is a reflection of the evils outside the church and enforces the idea of the church as a sanctuary. It also, at the same time, suggests that they are guardians. The spirit of God is present and... Um, fills the stone figures with god's like spirit and they are sort of like possessed by god as centuries yeah so it's sort of like 
the thinking would have been like, well, God is so good that he can even put goodness into these gross little weirdos. Yeah, yeah, they are, uh, they're gross and weird because they're fearsome and yeah. God can enter them like, like, uh, like Max, <laughs> like a Gundam. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're Gundams for angels. <laughs> oh, man. That's a cool idea. That is a really fucking <laughs> cool idea. That's great. There's precedent for that in some uh, stories of gargoyles, but mostly uh, there's actually a story called The Horn of Vapula, in, written in 1932 by Lewis Spence, in which a demon familiar is bound into a horned and goat-like gargoyle. And even in the movie Ghostbusters, the demonic spirits of Zool are, uh, they take over the body of gargoyles which yeah. serve as the as Vin's Clortho servants. Yeah. But again, like like in our uh or in the interview with Jeff, and you see it in the TV show for gargoyles, like we st- there's a I'll get into the uh the gargoyle uh synopsis or like the the setup of the TV show gargoyles. And I think it might illuminate this as well. So in the year nine the year is nine ninety-four. It's a medieval castle in Scotland. It's attacked by Vikings, but they are repelled by guards. And I think it's like it works out so that it's it's happening during the day and the guards are uh, fighting for their lives and they're losing. But then nightfall, the sun goes down and the gargoyles, a race of winged creatures, they sleep during the day in stone, but at night they come alive. They help the guards fight off the attackers. And while most of the people, including the captain of the guards, see them as heroes and defenders, there are many, including the king's advisor, the magus, who feel revulsion towards them. And the Goliath, the leader of the gargoyles, and his mentor, they go after the Vikings before they regroup, so they counterattack. They leave the castle, the two of them. They find out that this was a planned diversion, and they are caught by daybreak outside the castle. The castle is then attacked by Vikings, and they are betrayed by the captain of the guard who lets them inside. And then when Goliath returns, he finds all but a few of the gargoyles have been smashed, and the castle is razed. So here we have um, gargoyles as, as untrusted defenders. So even though they live in this castle and they serve to defend it, the magus and several other people are like re- repelled by them. Yeah. So there's still this element, this feeling of like, even though they are defending us and they are here for us, they're still uneasy and they're yeah. untrustworthy simply because of their demonic appearance, probably, which I always thought was really interesting and complicated for a kid show. Yeah. Complicating things further. So Xanathos, is that his name? Xanatos. Uh, Xanatos, thank you. Yeah. Xanatos, uh, also, like that is the name of a scheming villain for sure absolutely yeah no one is just named xanatos without like having a elaborate system of traps in their lair you know oh yeah but xanatos has like complicated reasons for bringing the gargoyles to fictional new york the storylines are complicated there's a complicated love triangle between uh goliath and uh demonia i think her name is the uh the only female uh gargoyle who is like a sort of femme fatale figure who like is maybe allied, maybe looking out for herself, maybe purely villainous. And there's this, there's, there was one episode called deadly force when one of the gargoyles Broadway 
So they have, you mentioned like the Ninja Turtles as being an inspiration for gargoyles and you're, you're bang yeah. on because they even include a character who's a sort of like April O'Neil uh, analog called Eliza, uh, who's a cop and Broadway is ac- is playing with her gun and accidentally shoots her. <laughs> and then it's like the whole episode is basically like a, a measured like gun debate. <laughs> Was it, this was like a 90s kid show though. So was the gun like a laser gun to get around the No, sensors? it's a gun. It's a straight up gun. Wow. It's a straight up gun. Wow. And there's like a shot of her lying in the pool of her own blood. <laughs> like, I this is for insane. sure watched that. That's, that is, that's bonkers. It's the eighth episode of season one. <laughs> it's like, wow. It's like early on in the story. <laughs> there's like a, there's, there's people, uh, there are gun runners. They're like arms dealers. Xanatos is like bringing in a shipment of like guns secretly. And they try to, she, and Eliza tries to like teach the gargoyles the like how to respect guns. <laughs> There's a gunslinger uh, who shows up. Eliza's gun is in a holster on the coat rack. Broadway is like kind of fascinated by the gun. He starts playing with it and he starts talking in old Western dialogue, like in John Wayne movies he's seen. He's like, he jumps around the apartment aiming the gun and then he accidentally shoots her. <laughs> Cause he drops the gun and he says, I hope I didn't break anything. And then he looks over at Eliza and she's lying in a pool of blood. Oh my God. That is, <laughs> that is the most nineties line. Yeah. <laughs> Like, <laughs> hope I didn't break anything. And this is all act one. This is like in 10 yeah. minutes. This is all happens. Oh, man. Yeah. And it's a really long story. Act three. This is all like, these are 22 minute episodes. And there's like, they have to like get her to the hospital. But they can't reveal that they're gargoyles. It's kind of like, like, like when criminals in stories like do something bad, they got to like somebody gets shot. They got to like get someone to the yeah. hospital, but nobody wants to like be seen doing it. Yeah. Like, oh, my God. Oh, man. So stressful. I do, it's yeah. I do remember the one episode where it was Halloween, and they're like, "Wait, we don't have to use our disguises." Oh yeah, that's a classic one. That was a, that was a good bit. And so were they. So they were like an ancient race of people, and then like what? Like what was the? Uh, like, they don't know, get into it too much. They don't get into the, the. Okay, yeah, yeah. They're like sworn to protect this one castle. Because I, I I remember. I'm I'm having this. This is like a like a I've just unlocked like a like a deep memory that I had forgotten I had. It's like I remember watching the show, and I was such like a I was such like a little little nature kid. I I took a lot with that with me into adulthood, just just animals and stuff. But I remember looking at this, watching the show, and be like, wait a second, all of these gargoyles look really different from each other. Are these are they the same species? Like, what's th- that? That one has a beak. He's the only one with a beak. There's like a dog one, kind of, who's like a bulldog one. Yeah. There's that little green guy that doesn't have wings like the other ones, but he's like, uh, and then there's that, that the, the guy with the beard who uh, wears armor and nobody else wears armor. He wears armor. Yeah. Um, I just, I, I remember being like, I wanted to know, understand more about like, what kind of creatures are these? What's going on? You know? Yeah. They don't get into it too much Yeah, on purpose, yeah. I think. Yeah. Fair. But there is, fair. there's a, there's a suggestion that there's like, there's many more of them, but they were all killed. So right. it's possible that like, like dogs, certain breeds, um, like when, when dogs, uh, reproduce, 
different breed characteristics come to the fore in interesting ways. And you can have multiple um, dogs from a litter showing different like uh, origins or different, like showing yeah. different um, yeah. traits from other, from uh, origins down the line. And also even I'm not suggesting this is how gargoyles reproduce, but dogs um, like the mother can produce offspring in the same litter from different fathers. Great. Yeah. That's no, that's a perfect, that's, that's, that's all I needed. And that's a perfect, ex- like that totally satisfies <laughs> my curiosity because like, yeah, yeah, of course, of course, gargoyles, they can tolerate a lot of genetic diversity within themselves without. Yeah. And, uh, and they can, uh, yeah, yeah. They, multiple, they, they're born in litters for sure. And they, there can be multiple fathers per litter and there's a lot. Yeah. Of, yeah okay. And Great. they all show different, they all have heightened, uh, genetic deviation. Yeah. I just want to touch on something uh, we were talking about before, uncertain and kind of shaky logic behind gargoyles affiliations with uh, like Catholic churches. I think it yeah. was just something that like builders liked to add because the, the their clergy were themselves kind of divided on like whether or not they should have gargoyles because you get some accounts saying that gargoyles are meant to illustrate evil and sin while others are saying that the grotesques are... Uh, warding devices and guardian devices yeah um but there is a an account by saint bernard of clairvaux was famous for speaking out against gargoyles carved on the walls of his monastery quote what are these fantastic monsters doing in the cloisters before the eyes of the brothers as they read what is the meaning of these unclean monkeys these strange savage lions and monsters to what purpose are here placed these creatures half beast half man or these spotted tigers. I see several bodies with one head and several heads with one body. Here's a quadruped with a serpent's head. There a fish with a quadruped's head. Then again an animal, half horse, half goat. Surely if we do not blush for such absurdities, we should at least regret what we have spent on them. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like the whole, like, faction of people that were like why are we being whimsical this is dumb it doesn't mean yeah. it all the, of those people were the puritans that went over to the united states yeah absolutely like that's no oh gargoyles here for a long time not till our deco <laughs> do we get gargoyles in north america i just uh yeah i because like you knew even before you said that like i with with a weird like incongruity with uh gargoyles in the catholic church is like for sure the whole time there were these people like what it's it's but it's weird i don't like it <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that kind of guy uh big monk energy yeah um so i'm gonna have one more final thought because this is a this is a very long episode with the the wonderful interview i might break it up into two we'll see but i found this quote um by a man named lester burbank Brideham. He was the staff officer at the Art Institute of Chicago for about um, 15 years. And he's got a great quote that kind of sums up gargoyles, chimeras, and the grotesque in French Gothic sculpture. Quote, there is much symbolism in the sculpture of the Gothic period, but we must be wary of reading in too much meaning. So what he's saying is, yes, there's (laughs) lots of symbolism. We can speculate, but... It might just be an aesthetic thing. They might have just been cool and techniques advanced enough to make them so they did. It's kind of what yeah. I read out of that. Yeah, yeah, totally. All right. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
I'm all out of gargoyle. I'm all gargoyled out. Uh, next episode, we will. It'll also be a big one. It's genies. Look forward oh, to boy. that. Yeah, and uh, take us away, Wes. Yeah, monsters, get get out of here. Go on. Monster Manual Mash is Christopher Lawson and Wes Grist. Edited by me, Chris Lawson. Find me on Twitter at Chris M. Lawson. Music by Wes, a.k.a. Elias. You can find more of his music on bandcamp.com slash Elias. That's numeral zero L-I-A-S. It's not a hacker thing, it's just what was available. Thanks to Sarah B. Milner for our logo. Thanks to everyone listening and to everyone talking monsters on the Monster Manual Mash Facebook group. Monsters to you.